it's probably safe to say that this year has introduced many of us uh, to a new phenomena, or at least reminded us of a phenomena that is not quite that new, but uh, for some of us it is, and it's captured in the phrase or the expression, fake news or alternative facts. You guys heard about this, right? It's been going on all over the place, and it seems like everyone everywhere is in up, up in arms over this disturbing trend that's going through our culture, uh, that, that uh, almost as if fake news and alternative facts is something new. Now, don't get me wrong, uh, it's never good for a society to have misleading information or intentionally deceptive kind of con uh, uh, information in our national conversation. My point simply is that fake news and alternative facts is not anything new. It's not like we haven't been down this road before. If you're 40 years and older, you certainly remember the name Jason Blair, right? Remember the New York Times writer that was disgraced for fabricating stories of American POW of the Iraq War, Jessica Lynch. You remember that. Mr. Blair had made national headlines because he fabricated the entire stories about Jessica Lynch, and it turns out after the controversy was exposed, he had fabricated a lot of stories that the New York Times had printed as real information. Uh, he made up interviews, whole cloth, and he didn't even meet the people he interviewed. Turns out that Mr. Blair simply got older stories from the Associated Press, the AP wire, and filled in information, filled in the gaps to meet the narrative that he wanted to write about. As was later reported, he just didn't feel like getting on a plane to go meet with those people. So when the whole controversy came to light in the early 2000s, not only was he fired, but two senior editors from the New York Times were forced to resign. Now, clearly, I don't think there's anybody in this room old enough to personally remember the most famous fake news story of all, October 30th, 1938, Martians invade America, right? You remember that? Now, we all know, obviously, that that was a broadcast of Orson Welles, The War of the Worlds, but millions of Americans, Americans like 76-year-old uh, Bill Dock, a mill worker from Grover's Mill, New Jersey, didn't know it was fake news. So Mr. Dock grabbed his shotgun, ran out into the night to defend his home. And fortunately, as was later reported, he didn't meet anybody he thought needed shooting. So that's a good thing. But the next morning, the major newspapers ran stories all over the place like Mr. Dock's. The New York Times reported 30 men and women rushed into the West 123rd Precinct Police Station ready to evacuate Manhattan. The Washington Post reported that two people suffered major heart attacks as a result of the shock. A man in Philadelphia had to convince his wife not to take her own life for fear of the Martian threat. The panic and confusion this caused was all over the papers for weeks to come. But here's the twist. The invasion of aliens was not the fake news I'm referring to. The fake news is that all the stories of panic and hysteria were drummed up. According to Brad Schwartz in his book, Broadcast Hysteria, Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, and the Art of Fake News, all the major news publications drummed up these stories of hysteria to discredit this up-and-coming upstart of journalism, broadcast radio. And they wanted to show and put distrust in people that this new form, this new media of getting information caused all of this panic to scare people into keeping their faithful subscriptions to the old reliable newsprint media, the newspaper. So fake news, alternative facts, has been around for a long time. Now honestly, 
In a world like ours, with so much tragedy and chaos, sometimes fake news can be welcome and it actually can be funny. This past week, for example, archaeologists have discovered King David's collection of essential oils. How great is that? I mean, in Psalm 23, when he's talking about the Lord anoints my head with oil, who would have known that he was referring to doTERRA's citrus bliss invigorating blend? How cool. Or this other article that came out Wednesday, five tips for launching an extreme men's ministry. So Dave and Larry, where's Larry? So I'm going to give you this article. Who doesn't want an extreme men's ministry? The article reads this. If your church is a New Testament church, well, who doesn't want to be a New Testament church? You need an extreme men's ministry. If you care about the souls of your men at all, you need to feed their egos and pet hobbies with some really jacked manly entertainment at all times. Well, we here know at the Babylon Bee that this is a lot of pressure, and we have on-staff experts who can help you with your men's ministry. So follow along as we transform men's ministry from lame-o to primo. Here are their five suggestions. Number one, stockpile enough assault rifles to kick off the second American Revolution. Run at least a dozen concurrent fantasy leagues throughout the year. Pound 10 cases of Monster Energy drinks and Mountain Dew before each event. Kidnap John Elridge in the middle of the night and force him to speak at all your events. And finally, drop all the men in the middle of Death Valley with no food or water and break their legs. Manly men's ministry. Well, fake news is all around us. Alternative facts are nothing new. But the problem is not a lack of journalistic standards or integrity. The problem is not the democratizing of news. The problem certainly is that the internet has made every one of us instant global broadcasters. The Bible says that the problem runs much, much deeper than this. The reason we have fake news is because the human heart does not love truth above all else. The human heart is divided and has allegiances to other things other than its creator. Those allegiances can be political, they can be social, they can even be religious. Rather than being wholly committed to God, the human heart is divided, and from that fundamental division flow all these other divisions in our culture. This is what the book of James is all about. From chapter 1 to chapter 5, James sees humanity's core problem as not a matter of politics, as not a matter of social or ethnic differences, not even a matter of fake news. The core problem of humanity is that we have a divided heart, and from that heart flow 10,000 other divisions amongst us because we are divided within. Now, since we've taken a break from our study of the book of James for the last 10 weeks, it's been good to just kind of get reoriented with what James's emphasis has all been about, to be reminded of this. And throughout the letter, James has been making the case that to be wholly committed to God, to be undivided, to not be double-minded is essential. In our passage this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, James will write to us about how our words reflect our allegiance to God. So let me read to you these 12 verses, and we'll jump into our passage. James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. 
if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So, in these 12 verses, James is writing to us regarding the responsibility of our words because of the power that's in the tongue. The tongue has the power to direct one's life. The tongue has the power to consume one's life. For this reason, there is a strong challenge we have, the challenge that the tongue provides. And this challenge reveals to us the connection between our hearts and our words. So let's look at them one at a time. The responsibility of our words in verses 1 and 2. Now, James, he begins with a particular prohibition that makes the general point pretty clear. Don't aspire to be a teacher, he says. That's the particular. Because teachers traffic in words, and our words will be judged as they reveal our hearts. That's the general point. Now, in the context here in James chapter 3, James is obviously speaking of teachers of God's Word. He's not talking about not being a school teacher. So, just in case any of you thought that, that's not what Scripture is getting at. He's talking about being a teacher of the Word of God. It's likely that within these churches, there were men that were rising up who were teachers of Scripture who either were not morally or intellectually fit to be teaching Scripture to God's people. And so division and confusion was starting to, to come up within the church. And we see this probably as a result when we see a chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. We'll look at that next week. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 11. James is talking about the power of words and the way they have led to quarrels and fighting and, and gossip amongst one another. So scholars think that James is probably addressing this particular situation of people wanting to be teachers because of the esteem it brought them, but not being prepared or fit to do it. So James takes this particular specific occasion as a way to teach a general principle about gospel change in the lives of these Christians. In other words, words are not only one of the most powerful tools that we have as people, they are also one of the most clearest indicators of where our hearts are with God. And this is what he, why he says what he does in verse 2. He says, we stumble in many ways, but if someone's been able to bridle their mouth, well, that person's perfect. What he means is that person's complete, mature. If you can get a hold of what's coming out of your mouth, you must be set. Because the power of words has the power to shape our lives like nothing else. It cannot be underestimated. 
as this poem states so well. It's, it's simply called the tongue. The boneless tongue, so small and weak, can crush and kill, declares the Greek. The tongue destroys a greater horde, the Turk asserts, than does the sword. The Persian proverb wisely saith, a lengthy tongue and early death, or sometimes takes this form instead, don't let your tongue cut off your head. The tongue can speak a word whose speed, say the Chinese, outstrips a steed. The Arab sages said in part, the tongue's great storehouse is the heart. From Hebrew was the maxim sprung, thy feet should slip but ne'er the tongue. The sacred writer crowns the whole, he who keeps his tongue doth keep his soul. The power of our words cannot be underestimated. And you see, the reason we need to be concerned as a society about things like fake news and alternative facts is the same reason we need to be concerned about all the use of our words is because our words provide a perspective, and through that perspective, people begin to perceive reality. So James says our words have a responsibility inherent within them because of the power of them. Now, in verses 3 through 6, he recognizes that there may be some within the, pe- the, the churches that don't agree with his point in verses 1 and 2. They may say, how, how powerful can words actually be? I mean, really, is it going to be that much of a matter how we use our language? After all, we don't, we don't hear this too often anymore, but many of you are old enough to remember that axiom. Sticks and stones, they break my bones, but words never hurt me, right? Now, in this generation, you never hear that. Apparently, words can hurt us tremendously, and there's some truth to that. But there was a time, good or bad, fair or not, that people used to just say whatever it is they wanted to say. My father is from the GI generation, also called the greatest generation that was ever born, is what they call it, right? He was born in 1915. So he'd be 102 if he was alive today. And I always loved, as I think back on the conversations my dad and I would have out in public, and the things he said were so politically incorrect that people would be shocked to listen to him now. But with my dad, you always knew where you stood, because he didn't have a filter. He didn't care about how you felt. He was going to tell you what he thought. And it's good to know that we have changed and matured a little bit as a society and culture. The point simply is... There were people, and there might be people today, that don't believe our words have that much power. James, well aware of that, offers two illustrations in verses three, uh, 3 through 6. Number one, our words have the power to direct. See, in verses 3 to the first half of verse 5. James offered two illustrations. Number one, that of a, a bit that you put in a horse's mouth and that of a ship. I know we don't live in an agrarian society, so here's a photograph of uh, what you would put in a horse's mouth. So this is actually uh, from antiquity. You can see that bar that goes across would go right into the horse. And if you can see, I put an arrow. It's hard to see probably where we're sitting, but there are dull spikes on either end of this bridle or this bit. So that once it goes into the horse's mouth, the rider can move the horse with ease. The amazing reality is with one of these things, a horse, three, four hundred pounds of raw power, can be easily controlled by a hundred-pound girl. You make it dance, make it jump, make it run, make it stop. James says, how amazing that something so small could control something so big. Now, with the second illustration that James gives in verse 4, he adds something else to the mix. Notice in verse 4, he talks about ships now. At the end of verse 4, he talks about how the rudder can move the ship wherever the will of the pilot directs. 
So he adds something new to the mix, the will of the pilot. The point James is getting at is that along with the desire of the pilot, the means of direction being the rudder, the entire ship is directed, and these correspond to your desires in your heart, your tongue shaping the direction of your life. So James says, look, if you don't think that your, your tongue has this much power, look around. The way we control powerful horses, the way we navigate ships. Now, James makes a connection between these two illustrations and his point from verses 1 and 2 at the very first half of verse 5. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And then he offers a third illustration at the end of verse 5 that shows our need or shows what the real problem is. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. This is the power has a tongue to direct. And that can be a positive thing, right? He's saying, he's all stating the case that your tongue can direct the course of your life. But he also talks about the power, the tongue has the power to consume. And that's always negative. It says here in verse 5b to verse 6, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell itself. James is saying the tongue, my friends, can be spiritual arson. Think about that. Our words can be, according to James, spiritual arson. Think of all the ways we can, as James says, stain, or depending on the translation you have, or corrupt or defile the course of our lives. Criticism, sarcastic humor or sarcasm, gossip, boasting, even flattery. So, it's not just that the content of what we say can be harsh or wrong like flattery. It can be the intention or the motives that make it staining of our lives. So flattery is, is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back, whereas gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face, right? So it's our words, the content and motivation of our words that can set the course of our lives. And James says, unfortunately, it's often consuming like a fire. We never use them well. And the danger about words such as these is once they leave your mouth, you can't bring them back in. You ever been in an argument with your husband or with your wife or uh, a disagreement with coworkers or a heated conversation with some friends, and, and as you're in the middle of the conversation, you know these things shouldn't come out, but they're already coming out, and you can't seem to just, and they just come out, and the damage is done. And you have to say something like, you oftentimes say, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean that. Actually, you did. You just didn't mean to say it out loud. But the reality is the damage is done, the fire has been set, and it consumes. This is the power of the tongue. It's like a small spark that sets off a huge forest fire. And James says, this is one of the reasons we have a huge challenge with this. And he sets up, but in verses 7 and 8, he talks about, now here is the real challenge of the tongue. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Here's the really bad news. James makes a clear statement of fact. 
that every creature known to humanity can be tamed and has been tamed. That's pretty amazing. And James, interestingly enough, he talks about the four major categories of animals that Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 talks about God making. And it's interesting, and I think James cites that passage on purpose because James is intending to link the very fact that we are God's image bearers, which the writer of Genesis 1 says in Genesis 1 26, that we are His image bearers and therefore we should use language to reflect His image. So he deliberately puts an allusion in the Genesis 1 26. He says, we've been able to tame all these animals, which by the way was the mandate that God gave humanity to domesticate the world. We've been able to do this with everything except the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue, James writes. Do you know why? Because our words, the use of our tongue, is a matter of the heart, and none of us can change our hearts. Same James says, look, we, we just can't do this. So in the next few verses, verses 9 through 12, James is demonstrating that there needs to be a continuity. There ought to be a continuity between something's essence and its evidence, so much so that if there's not that continuity, something is seriously wrong. And so in verses 9 through 12, James is showing the connection between our tongue, our words, and our hearts. In short, what he's saying is that if your speech is marked by tearing down rather than building up, something is seriously wrong. It shows we are disconnected, we are divided from God. To the degree that we might misuse our words when we gossip, when we backbite, when we grumble, when we hold back praise, when, when we deny to say what is true, when we deny encouragement to others, we are divided in our loyalties to God. And so James offers one more, actually a few more metaphors here at this last section to show how these things ought not be. So look at verse 10. James makes the point, from the same mouth, come blessing and cursing, brothers, these things ought not be so, and they use the metaphors of a spring, of a fig tree, and of a vine. And, and what he does is he shows that there's this beautiful biological unity that exists in God's creation, and that there should also be the same kind of spiritual unity between God and those who are to reflect His image. And this unity or disunity is no more clearly seen or heard than in the way we speak. Right? Jesus made this exact point in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 through 19. You don't have to look it up. It'll be on the screens behind me. Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Then in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says something very similar to this. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil, uh, out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Well, James is simply making a direct connection to what Jesus taught, that it's out of the heart that our mouths are going to speak. Now, hopefully by now, hopefully by now, you are making the direct connection that the way you speak is a practical indicator of the loyalty of your heart to the Lord. 
That's exactly James's point. You remember at the end of chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 26, James says, you think you're spiritual. If you haven't gotten a bridle on your speech, your spirituality, your religion is worthless. You're deceived. How we speak is a direct reflection of what's going on inside of us is one of the main points of the book of James, and it reflects whether or not we have a heart wholly committed to God or it's divided up. Remember, James showed how it's divided up. It's not just in the way we speak. It's the way we treat one another, a fawning deference to the wealthy, a discrimination towards those who are poor, and so many other ways. That's why the point is being made that when there's division in our heart towards the Lord, it's inevitable that there's going to be division amongst people. It always goes back to a matter of the heart. Now, however, when you read this passage, especially these last three or four verses, it would be easy to read them and walk away thinking, okay, so this means that Christians shouldn't cuss. And that's the application that I brought out of this when I first read this for the first time when I was 16 years of old, uh, 16 years old. When my buddies and I were doing a Bible study, when we came across James, we realized, okay, we, we really shouldn't be cussing as much as we should. So here was our solution. If any one of us cussed, any one of us in the group could punch that person, right? <laughs> Which led to more swearing and more punching. But at least the heart intention was good. Now, maybe some of you probably are more insightful, and you're reading that, and you're not just leaving it at cussing. You're including with that blame-shifting gossiping, not speaking the truth in love, or denying truth. You see how all those fall under the domain of what James is talking about in this passage. And, and you've done something about that. You, in the words of verse 3, you put a bit in your mouth to control your behavior and stop the way you're speaking these ways. And, that, and that's a great thing. That's a great start. But here's the reality. We have to understand the full significance of what James is talking about in this passage. If we do not make the connection between the words that come out of us and the condition of our heart, we are at best training ourselves to be moralists or Pharisees at best. This is what I'm driving at. In verse 8 and verse 9, critical to this passage, James says, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Friends, this is, this is not just simply evil. This is restless. It's like bored evil on a Friday night with nothing to do. And you guys know what it's like when you're restless. You end up getting into all kinds of trouble. James says this is a restless evil. It's the same word translated in chapter 1, verse 8, when James is talking about if you're double-minded, you become unstable. It's the same word that's translated as restless. It's a radically off-kilter, off-balance kind of thing going on in your heart. That's what the tongue is. It's a reflection of this restlessness in the heart, and that's why no human being can tame it. Friends, merely changing our words and the way we speak, that, that, that is a good thing. But if that's where we leave it and don't see our need for our hearts to be transformed, is missing the point. When you lose your temper with your family, when you complain about your boss, when you joke at someone else's expense, when you do not speak truth, when truth is called for, 
when you do not praise God because you're afraid of what people will think, when you drop the F-bomb to fit in, when you criticize because everyone else does, when you grumble because it's easier than trusting, when you do not give thanks because it's easier to focus on what you do not have rather than what you do have, that's just not a minor issue. That is an x-ray into your soul that says something is wrong. There is a disconnect between what should be happening inside and what's coming out of you. It is not simply that our words need to change in all these situations. Our hearts need to be transformed. And James says, no human can do this. That, that actually is, should be discouraging. And we actually see this all the time in our culture. You, you see it probably every week there's either some celebrity or some politician that says something horrible and it's just just horrible and then they're kind of forced to apologize and none of us likes the apology because we know the words have changed but we know the heart hasn't changed and that's why we look at these apologies and go this is just meaningless it's a parade and a charade of our culture because the words are different but the heart's the same and James says it no human can change it But the key, the hope he leaves us with is in verse 9, right? So in verse 9, after he talks about this restless evil in our hearts, he gives us a hint about being made in the likeness of God. Again, James is going back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. All of us were made in the image of God. And because we were made in His image, there was a time when our words reflected Him because that was the image we reflected. And there was always truth and encouragement, and honesty, uh, and joy. But then when sin entered in the picture, it all went sideways. And now we no longer use our words to build up, we use our words to tear down. And that is evidence of the fallen reality we now live in. Until our hearts change, our words will never really change. I mean, the form of them might, we might say the right things to everyone else, but they'll never really change the way they were intended to change. That's why Scripture always takes us to the heart. That's why we cannot leave this chapter, this section, thinking, I just have to cuss less, or I have to just maybe not gossip as much. Those are great, but that's not the point. You need to go to the heart and say, why do I even want to gossip? Why do I even want to not present this person in the best possible light? Why do I want to shift the blame somewhere else, not speak the entire truth so I look better than I ought to. Why do I even want that? It's because my heart is corrupt. Friends, Jesus wants to change your heart, not your language. But it is no coincidence, by the way, that Jesus is called the Word of God. See, He wants to get after your heart, not necessarily though your speech patterns, but it's not a coincidence that He's called the Word. His very very character is representative of God's words themselves, and as we look to Him, as we trust Him changing us, we become, and our speech becomes, more and more like God's words themselves. You see, this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, 24. He said, put on the new self, when he's talking about the work of Christ in their midst, put on the new self, created after the image of and likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, put away all falsehood and speak the truth. That is what Jesus came to do, 
to restore us into the image and likeness of God. This is not fake news. This is, by definition, the good news, and it's available to all of us who trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for James in this book as we jump back into it and are reminded quickly of how practical and pastoral this little letter is. Father, we're also reminded how the Christian life, there there is an internal as well as an external, and it's never one without the other. Father, it is a common grace good that we don't use language that tears people down, nor do we gossip or blame shift or deny truth. But Father, we know the real heart change has to be in our hearts. As Jesus, you said, it's from the abundance of our hearts that we're going to speak. So, Father, we pray that our hearts would be changed, that you would reign and be king in our hearts, that your kingdom would be set up there. That way, all the words that come from us would be truth spoken in love. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for when we use this wonderful gift of language to tear down and to criticize. Father, forgive us when we use this gift of language to do things with it that you never intended. Father, help us to use it for your glory and the good of your people. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.